qualified immunity only matters when someone's constitutional rights have been violated. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. A couple of weeks ago, when we were discussing the killing of Tyree Nichols on our weekly roundup, we talked about one of the major hurdles to holding police officers accountable for their misconduct, namely a legal principle called qualified immunity. So I thought we'd take a deep dive into what qualified immunity is, how it was developed, what it could mean if we actually ended it, and what the path forward could look like. My guest today is one of the leading experts on qualified immunity, Jay Schweiker. Jay is a research fellow with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. His research focuses on accountability for prosecutors and law enforcement, plea bargaining, Sixth Amendment trial rights, and the provision and structuring of indigent defense. He's a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School, where he edited articles for the Harvard Law Review. Jay, welcome to Politicology. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Why don't we start with a very, very high level? We're talking about criminal justice reform, but qualified immunity specifically. As a, as a, as a piece of background information, can we just set the stage with what the criminal justice system is supposed to do in the, pers- in the first place, its purpose? And then we'll dig into this thing we're talking about, qualified immunity. Sure. I'm, you know, this is a, really a large question of fo- political philosophy in a sense. But um, I mean, in my view, the criminal justice system has an absolutely essential role in our society and really in any society, um, because there are people who, for one reason or another, are a threat to public safety and to endanger innocent people. And, you know, is though different libertarians have different views on this, um, certainly I and people at the Cato Institute think that it is an essential role of the state to protect people against those who would hurt, steal, murder, rape. Um, and the criminal justice system has to be robust uh, to protect innocent people. So we entrust agents of the state with remarkable power. Um, and they need that power to do their jobs. But with that power has to come accountability. And accountability is, in a sense, kind of a back-end concern. It's kind of a thing that happens at the end of the criminal justice process. But in our view, if you don't have firm accountability in place, it really doesn't matter what rules or rights or procedures you have on the front end, right? You can have a constitution that lists a bunch of robust-sounding constitutional rights for criminal suspects and defendants. But if those rights can be violated with impunity, they're not actually protecting anyone. They're what Madison would have called parchment barriers. And so even though it's a kind of after-the-fact principle, it lays over the entire criminal justice system. Um, And it's an absolutely essential corollary of the power that we entrust agents of the state in enforcing um, our most serious laws and in handing out our most serious punishments. With that as background, let's talk about this thing called qualified immunity, which is a term that you will see in print almost uh, once a week if you're just a casual observer of the news. If you're in Washington, D.C., you'll see it every day. What is it uh, in the first place? What is this concept called qualified immunity? Sure. So qualified immunity is a defense that uh, public officials can raise in civil rights lawsuits against them um, that basically says even when they have violated someone's constitutional rights, they can't be held liable unless they violated clearly established law. And that phrase, clearly established law, is really the key to understanding qualified immunity. Because as a practical matter, what it usually means is that you can't hold uh, a public official accountable for a rights violation unless you can identify a prior judicial decision already decided in your jurisdiction 
where someone else's rights were violated in nearly the same factual circumstances. In other words, it's quite common for courts um, uh, sitting on uh, civil rights cases to say, yes, your rights were violated, but we can't find a case where someone else's rights were violated in quite the same way as what this person did. So they get qualified immunity case dismissed. Can you talk about how that's different from the normal way that lawyers go about looking to precedent for what might or might not be constitutional? Sure. So precedent is a matter of following previously issued decisions to to guide current decision making. Uh, it's basically this idea that you know you want the law to be stable and predictable. Um, of course, every case has its own factual distinctions. I mean, you almost never have like literally identical factual circumstances. So a lot of what you know lawyers do and what judges have to do deciding cases is applying past precedent to new factual circumstances. Um, sometimes that's obvious, sometimes it's less obvious, but that's, you know, the ordinary business of courts is continuing to flesh out just how detailed precedent is in its application to new facts. But what happens with qualified immunity is a court will first go through the effort of saying, okay, applying our precedent to these facts, we have determined that this is unconstitutional. That like the merits question and the, you know, in the way that a lawyer would say it is yes, there was a rights violation, but then there's this separate additional question of okay, but were these facts, the facts of this case, similar enough to the facts of prior cases for us to say that this right was clearly established? Um, and that's not a principle that you see in almost any other area of law, right? It's not a legal principle that if you have slightly different facts, you can't be held liable. This would be like saying, you know, a doctor can't be held liable for medical malpractice or a lawyer can't be held liable for legal malpractice if they committed that malpractice in a slightly new factual scenario than prior cases. Mm. That's what we're dealing with with qualified immunity. Okay. But that's not how the statute or the origin of qualified immunity was really written in the first place. Is that accurate? That's right. And okay. so I think the best place to start really, you know, with the history of qualified immunity is one of the most important statutes in the history of the Republic, um, which was originally passed by the Reconstruction Congress in 1871. Um, today, we call that statute Section 1983 after its place in the U.S. Code. And it was passed in large part to give teeth to the recently enacted 14th Amendment and to protect in particular the rights of freedmen in the Reconstruction South. Um, because even though the 14th Amendment guaranteed their equality and liberty, of course, those rights were not being respected hmm. um, by Southern states and by public officials in Southern states carrying out unconstitutional laws. And so this statute um, is, is actually rather simple as federal statutes go. What it basically says is any person acting under color of state law, in other words, acting with the authority of the state, who causes the violation of someone's federally protected rights, which usually means their constitutional rights, shall be liable to the party injured. That's what it says. So basically it creates a cause of action in federal court. If your rights are violated by, this, by a state official, you can go into federal court and bring a claim for money damages against them. And that's it. That is the plain language of the statute. Shall um, be, not may. No, yeah, exactly. Shall be liable yeah. is really the key right. phrase there. And for the first hundred years or so of that statute's history, um, the Supreme Court interpreted it to mean what it said. And there's actually a really interesting case um, that has kind of mostly been forgotten about until recently um, from 1915 called Myers versus Anderson, which involved... Um, uh, election officers who had refused to register black voters under um, a state's, um, you know, grandfather clause statute, mm. basically saying they didn't qualify for it. And these voters brought a Section 1983 claim against these officials. Um, 
And when this got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court had already issued another decision saying, you know, these kinds of statutes are unconstitutional because they violate the 15th Amendment. They constitute racial discrimination in voting. And the defense that these um, election officers raised in this case was, okay, well, you know, fine, but like we weren't acting with malice. You know, we weren't, we didn't have any ill intent. We weren't intending to deprive them of their constitutional rights. You know, we didn't know the statute was unconstitutional, so we shouldn't be able to be held personally liable. In other words, this is kind of the proto- version of modern qualified immunity arguments. And the Supreme Court at this point in time said, basically in a very short opinion, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. That's, the statute says- Intent's you, not part of it. <laughs> yeah, like you, it says, you know, this statute's unconstitutional, you enforced it, so you're liable, that's it. But then in 1967, um, in a case called Pierce versus Ray, the Supreme Court basically did an about face on that. And it's really the exact same sort of situation as the Myers case, where you had um, police officers who were enforcing uh, an unconstitutional loitering statute against um, civil rights activists. Um, and in this this time, um, the court said, well, you know, the statute may be unconstitutional, but at common law, good faith was a defense to the tort of false arrest. And this civil rights claim is kind of like that tort, because you were saying it wasn't lawful for them to arrest you under the statute. So we're going to remand and let them argue whether or not they were acting in good faith. So this was kind of the first like early version of qualified immunity, um, which at least still required the defendants to show that they were actually acting in good faith. But then over the next you know decade and a half, um, the Supreme Court continued to expand and modify this doctrine. And in a 1982 decision called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, that's really the birth of the modern qualified immunity doctrine, because that's where the court first articulated this clearly established law standard. In other words, they said it doesn't matter you know, what the intent or good faith of the defendant actually was. All that matters is whether their, you know, their actions were, unlawful, were clearly unlawful under this standard. So the Supreme Court kind of characterized this as moving from a subjective to an objective good faith standard. I think it's more accurate to say they were moving from an actual good faith standard to a pretend good faith standard. Because under modern qualified immunity, even if the defendants knew they were acting unlawfully, even if they were intending to violate someone's constitutional rights, they can still receive qualified immunity. Um, and we saw a very recent example of this principle in a case called Frazier versus Evans, which involved the First Amendment right to record the police in the course of their public duties. Um, Denver police officers had been trained for years that citizens have a First Amendment right to record the police in public. And every federal court that has addressed this question has agreed on that. They nevertheless um, arrested, uh, illegally searched, and uh, they, or they threatened to arrest and illegally searched a man who had been recording them making an arrest in public. Um, he brought a Section 1983 claim. And even though they knew, even though discovery showed that like the officers in this case had attended a training session like a year ago with big slides saying, citizens have a First Amendment right to record you. You may not arrest them if they're not interfering in your duties. The Tenth Circuit, unlike six other circuits, had not yet addressed this question. So they got qualified immunity. Wow. So that's the state of the doctrine today. Um, which, of course, you know, unsurprisingly, yeah. makes it incredibly difficult to hold agents of the state accountable for constitutional violations and very often excuses egregious or even intentional misconduct. This is fascinating. And later on, we're going to get into the arguments sort of for and against and, and how we might be able to deal with this. But can you speak a little bit to 
the rationale of the court, specifically the Supreme Court, in expand? Is there a consistent theme uh, or basis on which they continually have expanded this uh, this this doctrine? So it's interesting because if you look at the way the court first decided this case in this issue in in the Pearson case in 1967. There was kind of this sense that they were trying to, that even though the statute didn't say anything about a good faith defense, that they were kind of trying to interpret it against the common law background of the tort of false arrest. I think this, I think the court was mistaken in its analysis there for kind of technical reasons that we can't get into, but I, I don't think it's, it was an egregious mistake. Um, but by the time of Harlow, the court is, in, is explicitly engaging in full-on policymaking. It's not even pretending to interpret the statute anymore. And the re, I mean, we, and we know this because that's what the court says in the opinion. I mean, it's explicitly engaging in policy analysis. It's talking about, you know, its major concerns are things like, um, you know, deterring government agents from being able to carry out their duties um, if they're, you know, over going to be over deterred um, by the risk of, you know, liability, as well as the sort of burden of being involved in civil rights litigation to begin with, um, just the cost and time of like sitting for depositions and going through litigation. What's really interesting about Harlow is that that case actually wasn't even a Section 1983 case. It actually involved um, the Bivens Doctrine, which is sort of a, the the Supreme Court has, even though there's no federal statute that lets you bring civil rights claims against federal officers, the Supreme Court has sort of articulated an inherent right in the Constitution to do that, and that's called Bivens. And qualified immunity applies the same in both Bivens and Section 1983. But Harlow was a Bivens case, and then at the very end, the court drops a footnote and says, oh, and by the way, you know, these same standards will apply to Section 1983, because of <laughs> course it would be weird to have different standards. <laughs> so by that point in time, they're not even, they're not even pretending wow. to interpret the statute. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just full on judicial policymaking, untethered from the text or history of the statute, and with policy rationales that um, whether they were reasonable or not in principle, simply have not held up as an empirical matter. So this is not a result of textual analysis. This is this is judicial activism. Absolutely, okay. it's. I mean, it's it's absolute. It's conscious, intentional judicial yeah. policymaking. And and I think you know, in a way, even though the modern Supreme Court hasn't, you know, taken any action to reconsider qualified immunity, I d I do think the court is somewhat embarrassed by the doctrine because. Mm. It, it's just a very it's just a very different era. Judges today of all ideological stripes generally try to faithfully apply the text of statutes they interpret. And it was just a very different era in the early 80s. OK, so we've walked through the history now. Can you give us a, a, an example of how this might be applied in a case do you have a, an ex a go-to example or two about how specifically about, you know, how similar this, the, the facts uh, of a case need to be in order for qualified immunity to not hold up as a defense? Absolutely. Um, I mean, one example that I like to use is a case called Baxter versus Bracey, um, which is a case from a few years ago. Um, it involved a man who was being chased by police officers, uh, eventually went into an abandoned basement and surrendered. Uh, he sat on the ground and put his hands up. Um, nevertheless, the police deployed their dog against him, um, and he suffered really severe bite wounds under his arms because he had his hands up uh, when the dog attacked him. Um, so he um, actually, pro se at the time, um, brought a civil rights claim against these officers, and he actually found a case in the Sixth Circuit where this was being litigated 
that said it is a it is excessive force and violation of the Fourth Amendment for police to deploy a dog against a suspect who is surrendered and is laying on the ground. Which sounds like yeah, this sounds case. like exactly what happened. Uh, but what the Sixth Circuit on appeal said in that case was, well, in this prior case, the guy was laying on the ground. Whereas here, Baxter was sitting on the ground oh, with his yeah. hands up, and he points us to no decision that would put police on notice that sitting on the ground with your hands up on its own would, you know, that the use of a dog in those circumstances would be a Fourth Amendment violation, qualified immunity. <laughs> okay, so this is just farcical at this point. It, it, it is. And I mean, and look, I mean, to be fair, that is a relatively aggressive example of it. And sure. one of the problems with qualified immunity is that it's so amorphously defined that it's hard to predict how you know, how judges are going to apply it. Yeah. But that is absolutely the level of specificity that can be demanded um, in these cases. Uh, so it's it's extremely difficult. Um, and it's also just unpredictable how farcical judges are going to make it in any given case. Okay. So by this point, our listeners are probably like, yeah, okay, I can understand why there would be so much agreement across across the spectrum about the need to do something to reform this doctrine. Um, in a State of the Union address last week, President Biden specifically said that we need to hold law enforcement officers accountable. Here's what he said. I know most cops and their families are good, decent, honorable people, the vast majority. But they risk. And they risk their lives every time they put that shield on. But what happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. More resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime. More community intervention programs. More investment in housing, education, and job training. All this can help prevent violence in the first place. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. So how does qualified immunity get in the way of holding law enforcement to that higher standard the president was talking about? Sure. So I think it's important to think about accountability in sort of at least two different lenses. There's the, so one, to clarify, qualified immunity does not have any application in criminal cases. And of course, the officers who killed Tyree Nichols have been criminally charged, um, just as right. Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, was criminally charged and convicted of murder. Um, so, you know, you might ask yourself, well, OK, so what's the problem? I mean, what is this concern about qualified immunity if it doesn't stop these criminal prosecutions? But accountability isn't just about um, you know, post hoc, like, you know, ensuring that people who commit the most egregious high profile mm -hmm. examples of police violence are held accountable. It's how do you inculcate a culture right. of accountability such that these kinds of violations don't occur in the first place? Um, and we, we've started using this, um, at Cato, we've started using this term, like the broken windows theory of policing. Mm. Basically that like when you permit this sort of broken windows theory that if you permit broken windows and minor instances of vandalism, that sort of creates a culture of lawlessness that eventually, you know, results in more violent crimes. And whether they're, you know, whether or not that theory is true in general, I think it is true in the context of, you know, when you per permit police officers to get away with, you know, more ordinary instances of misconduct, you know, detaining people without reasonable suspicion or 
uh, making unlawful arrests or conducting unlawful searches or using, you know, force that even if it's not egregiously over the bounds is, is unnecessary, you create and, and you let them do that without accountability. Mm-hmm. You create this culture where officers simply don't expect to be held accountable. And that's how you get the sort of egregious, yeah. over-the-top violence that you saw in the brutal killing of Tyree Nichols. Yeah. It's also worth pausing, I think, to talk about the difference between being you know, uh, held criminally liable for, uh, for misconduct and also civil recourse for victims. Can you talk about how to, those two things are different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, of course. Um, in a lot of cases, they're both important. Um, and certainly I do think that, you know, criminal prosecution is, you know, an important part of accountability in the most extreme cases like, you know, George Floyd and Tyree Nichols. But we should also recognize that it's a pretty blunt instrument and an extraordinary instrument. And frankly, you know, my view is that criminal prosecution probably isn't the right answer in the majority of, you know, instances of police misconduct. Um, but the reason we have civil recourse is, you know, to have a more measured, proportionate penalty, and also, critically, to put the power in the hands of victims of misconduct to decide whether or not to bring um, an action. Because it is extraordinarily difficult to convince prosecutors to go after law enforcement. You know, I mean, again, they are in the case of Tyree Nichols. They did in the case of George Floyd. These are some of the highest profile, most controversial, um, you know, charged examples of police killings in the history of the country. So a lawyer would have an incentive to go after a high-profile case in in uh, in contrast to lots of other cases where there would be no real incentive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, prosecutors work very closely with law enforcement. They're very, very reluctant um, to, to bring prosecutions absent extraordinary public pressure, which is why you need to give victims the ability to decide to bring those right. actions um, and to get you know, both compensation. Of, I mean, the, the financial compensation for their injuries is, of course, important. But Arguably, what's more important is the the recognition from the judicial system that something wrong happened and that there's yeah. going to be a correction. And in the same way that victims of violent crimes, you know, care about their offenders being prosecuted, even if that doesn't put money in their pockets, victims of, you know, official misconduct care about getting a judgment that something wrong happened. And, you know, the money is part of that system, but in a lot of to- a lot of times it's really not even the most significant part of it. Um, and, and qualified immunity, of course, is what gets in the way of so many meritorious civil rights claims um, that would have compensated a victim, but for this lawless legal technicality. You know, we talk a lot about uh, this idea on the podcast about no man being above the law, in particular in, you know, vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Um, but it feels like the doctrine of qualified immunity has led to this point where police seem to be above the law in a lot of cases. So I want to talk about um, how this impacts the individual. So what does this, you know, look like for individuals who've experienced police misconduct and are seeking to hold officers accountable, whether it's criminal or civil recourse they're seeking? Qualified immunity essentially stands as a barrier to both of those avenues of recourse. Is that accurate? Well, Qualified immunity is not a defense in criminal cases. Okay. So, you know, again, as a formal matter, the doctrine only applies in civil cases. Right. But culturally. Yeah, I think culturally this doctrine, uh, you know, uh, contributes to what I consider a culture of near zero accountability for law enforcement, which leads to the kind of crimes like we saw in the case of Tyree Nichols. But 
a, you know, as a doctrinal matter, yeah. it's only going to be a barrier in civil lawsuits, not in criminal prosecutions. Got it. Okay. Uh, the killing of Tyree Nichols has has obviously brought policing reform back into the policy debate. Um, uh, there are two big arguments that people will make um, against ending qualified immunity. I mean, there there are several, but the ones that come up a lot are, you know, police officers have to be able to make judgment calls in the line of duty. Uh, qualified immunity protects them and allows them to do that. And that taking qualified immunity away could lead to officers being hesitant to act when it is most needed. Um, let's take that one on first. Um, and, and the thing that stands out to me in this argument is that you do want officers to have clarity about where the lines are when they're, when they're on duty, right? Um, would taking qualified immunity away, uh, eliminate that clarity? And, and, and what's, what's your response to that argument? Sure. So I think that, you know, this is probably the most common argument I hear in defense of qualified immunity. And I, and I think for, for the most part, it comes from a, a reasonable place. I think people, most people understand that police officers have incredibly difficult, dangerous jobs, that they have to make tough on the spot decisions where they don't have time to deliberate. Um, and that you don't want them to be, you know, facing liability or discipline anytime they make a good faith mistake of judgment. I actually think that's completely reasonable. It just has absolutely nothing to do with qualified immunity. Um, because again, the, the important thing to understand is that qualified immunity only matters when someone's constitutional rights have been violated, right? It, it applies in that zone between, yes, your rights were violated, but we don't have a prior case with sufficiently similar facts. That's where it matters. So in that regard, it's really important to understand that just as a matter of the Fourth Amendment itself, the Supreme Court has been very clear that the Fourth Amendment incorporates incredible deference to police officers. In other words, when police officers, you know, make a so-called good faith mistake, if they use force that turns out to not be necessary or arrest someone that they had probable cause to arrest, but who turns out to be innocent, they haven't violated anyone's rights at all. It doesn't violate your Fourth Amendment rights for police officers to make a mistake of judgment, even, you know, frankly, in, in tragic cases where lethal force is used unnecessarily. That is not on its own unconstitutional. Um, it is only unconstitutional when officers act objectively unreasonably given the facts known to them at the time of their actions. So this protection for, you know, good faith decision-making for on-the-spot decisions is completely reasonable and we yeah. should protect it. It already exists. Yeah, but that protection comes from the Constitution. If mm. we eliminated qualified immunity wholesale tomorrow, that protection would still be there. Okay. Um, the other, and the other thing about clarity that I think it's important to understand is that qualified immunity relies on this bizarre legal fiction that officers in the heat of the moment are thinking, are the facts of this case like the facts hmm. of this prior case that the Tenth Circuit published six months ago? Well, it's similar in this regard, but there is this, I mean, <laughs> and it's just complete nonsense. Right. I mean, just as a matter of common sense, we know police officers can't possibly be like, going through the, you know, technical details of prior cases as they're making decisions. But now we know empirically um, that this is just not even how police officers are trained. Um, Joanna Schwartz, um, UCLA law professor, who really is the leading empirical scholar of qualified immunity in the country, uh, has written a lot of interesting articles about the doctrine, but one recently that um, I believe is called um, Qualified Immunity's Boldest Lie, examines um, basically, I think, like every police department in the state of California and their training materials and like what, you know, officers are trained on. 
And the overwhelming majority of cases, officers are not trained on any like appellate level decisions at all. They're oh, wow. trained on, ex- on a high level general principles about, you know, when excessive force is justified, when lethal force is justified. Um, and, you know, they're kind of just trained to apply those general principles to the facts of cases as they come up. Um, so this idea that, that qualified immunity relies on that, oh, well, this case is going to put an officer on notice that in this exact set of factual circumstances, that it's just mm. not true. So it, it's, it's ridiculous to expect officers to like, you know, be lawyers in the moment, but qualified immunity <laughs> is the doctrine that treats them like that. Um, and it's just a, it's a complete fiction. And they're police officers, not lawyers. Right. Uh, okay. Let's deal with the other argument that comes up a lot, which is, um, that ending qualified immunity would somehow open the floodgates to frivolous lawsuits. Um, can you deal with that one? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, again, the the motivation here of like wanting to protect officers from non-meritorious lawsuits is a completely reasonable one. But again, it just doesn't actually have anything to do with qualified immunity. Because, you know, again, qualified immunity only matters in meritorious lawsuits, right? It applies in that space between your rights are violated, but there's no prior case. So by definition, that is not a frivolous lawsuit. Um, When genuine non-meritorious lawsuits are brought, there are other tools of civil procedure that can filter out lawsuits at early stages of litigation. You know, that system doesn't work perfectly, um, and, it, you know, we could even have a, a discussion about whether we need other tools of civil procedure if it really is a problem that officers are inundated with frivolous lawsuits. But qualified immunity is simply not the tool for that. And again, I think this is something that's reinforced both by common sense and just an understanding of when the doctrine applies, but it's also borne out empirically. Um, another piece by Joanna Schwartz uh, that, that she looked at, um, basically she examined a sample of different federal jurisdictions over a course of a few years and looked at every single um, Section 1983 claim brought against law enforcement officers in that period. In other words, cases where qualified immunity could, in principle, be raised. And if qualified immunity is really doing a good job of filtering out non-meritorious lawsuits, you would expect to see a lot of cases dismissed at the pleading stage. Right. In other words, before discovery, which is you know a lengthy costly period of litigation. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, the Supreme Court's purported rationale for creating qualified immunity is we want to spare officers from the time and expense of lengthy litigation. What she found, though, is that qualified immunity only results in dismissing an infinitesimally small proportion of cases at the pleading stage. 0.6% of cases are dismissed at that stage based on qualified immunity. Um, whereas other tools of civil procedure, like, you know, motions to dismiss for failure to state a claim or for lack of jurisdiction result in orders of magnitude more dismissals. So the doctrine just isn't even doing the thing that its proponents say it's supposed to do. Um, so, you know, again, I think, you know, these, the concerns, I think a lot of people are very reasonably sort of feel protective about law enforcement officers and the difficult job that they have. And I think that those concerns are reasonable. It just, when you actually look at the way qualified immunity works, it has nothing to do with those concerns. You mentioned the proponents of qualified immunity, but if there is such vast agreement uh, among policymakers that this is genuinely a bad thing. I mean, that line from the State of the Union got a standing ovation from everybody in the room, one of the only times that happened in the night. And 
And yet, here we are having a discussion about this sort of 800-pound gorilla in the room of criminal justice reform, qualified immunity. And one of my guests on the Weekly Roundup, the uh, the episode we discussed, the killing of Tyree Nichols, made a point that the, that the police unions are actually one of the biggest obstacles to doing anything about this because of their political power. Um, so before we get to what your prescription would be to deal with this, I want to talk about uh, I want people to really understand the landscape of how how qualified immunity is being propped up. What 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 is aside from the courts and the the you know the way this has been interpreted over the years? Co- Congress could act to do something about this. Um, what's the impe- impediment? What who's standing in the way and who's actually in favor of this? I mean, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and, and what's interesting is that you know. I would say that, like, you know, when Cato started the, our campaign to challenge the doctrine of qualified immunity in 2018, we were mostly looking at it at the Supreme Court level. You know, we weren't really focused on legislation at that point. And there really is overwhelming cross-ideological consensus uh, in on this issue in the public policy zone. Um, one of the things that we did was organize a what we called a cross-ideological amicus brief that we filed in the Supreme Court in multiple versions that was signed onto by you know, dozens of groups from across the ideological spectrum, obviously libertarian groups like Cato and the Institute for Justice and Reason, very liberal progressive groups like the ACLU and the NAACP, but also very um, conservative groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, a very conservative religious liberties organization, um, and the Second Amendment Foundation. Um, Because, you know, even if we have different views on, you know, how to interpret or how to prioritize different constitutional rights, everyone wants those rights to be protected, right. which means they want there to be accountability if they're violated. Um, and, and in the early, and, and in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, um, there actually was, I think, this kind of brief moment of kind of bipartisan consensus that there was something going on here too. Um, you know, in June of 2020, Colorado, which was the first state to pass state level um, qualified immunity reform, uh, enacted its law by overwhelmingly bipartisan margins. Mm. The vote in the Colorado Senate was 32 to 1. Whoa. Uh, and even in Congress at this point in time, um, you know, even a, a lot of Republicans were very frankly acknowledging that there was something problematic about qualified immunity and that they understood there was a problem here. At that point in time, um, Republican Senator Mike Braun introduced a bill that would have essentially eliminated qualified immunity in its current form, the clearly established law standard, and replaced it with, you know, very, very narrow safe harbors and in narrow mm-hmm. circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was, you know, even political bipartisan consensus that there was a problem, even if it wasn't clear what the solution was. And I think, unfortunately, what happened was a few things. One is, as you mentioned, you know, the law enforcement lobby got very involved in this and just has a very knee-jerk defensive uh, protectiveness around this doctrine, which they see as sort of essential um, to their members. I think a lot of that is driven by genuine misunderstanding even on their part. I mean, I can't tell you how many like debates or talks I've done where there was like a, a representative of law enforcement there who by the end of the talk was like, well, I mean, okay, if someone's rights were violated, of course there should be a remedy. I'm just saying, you know, you shouldn't hold officers liable, you know, when they were making good faith mistakes of judgment. It's like, great. We completely we, agree. We agree you know? there. Yeah. But, but I, so I think there is a lot of, I mean, they're an incredibly powerful lobby, as you said. Yeah. And I think what also happened, unfortunately, is that um, you know, in the aftermath of sort of the national turmoil that George Floyd's murder provoked and the sort of defund the police movement, um, which obviously was very politically controversial. And, which also nobody wants to do. Which nobody, nobody wants to, wants to nobody do. Nobody wants to do, but that's my exact <laughs> point is that it put, it put 
it, it had such visibility right. that even people who were like, well, yeah, we should probably do policing reform were like, well, I don't want to get rid of the police. Right. And get I think, a backlash. And I think, unfortunately, qualified immunity kind of got wrapped up in this broader mm. culture war narrative mm -hmm. about defund the police. Um, yep. And even a lot of, you know, Democrats after the 2020 election were very hesitant about doing anything that seemed anti-law enforcement because of how hot this issue was. Yeah. And even though, again, for the reasons we've discussed, qualified immunity is not protecting reasonable law enforcement officers, it kind of got wrapped up in this culture war narrative. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, you know, I mean, in our discussions with staffers and, and folks on the Hill, I mean, you know, we had a lot of people um, of both parties sort of very candidly telling us, you know, look, I hear you. I understand the policy issue completely. It's definitely a problem. This but, is, this is coded, this, you know, reads as anti-law enforcement. And so we can't do it right now. You know, try again in a few years. Yeah. And Defund I, appreci I appreciated the candor. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. But the, one of the reasons I wanted to touch on this is because, you know, this is a political podcast. We're often talking about the politics of things. And I wanted to take a deeper dive into the policy and, and give folks a sense of just how damaging bad politics can be on policy. And so in this case, you have a slogan that turned out to be a very deep wound to the left to getting anything done on criminal justice reform. It, ba it backfired so badly that even when there is broad, broad agreement, the, the optics now are so bad that you can't even get the thing done that everybody agrees on. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to throw stones here, but I think, sure. you know, what, one of the things that we always, by we, I mean Cato, always try to emphasize when we talk about qualified immunity, both because it's true, but also because I think it's an important political point, is that this doctrine is hurting the law enforcement community as much as anyone else. Police officers have in my, you know, an essential but a difficult and dangerous job. And that job absolutely depends on the trust and respect of the communities they police for them to be able to do it. If people aren't willing to report crimes and cooperate with police officers in the investigation of serious crimes, police can't solve cases. I mean, very few cases are solved by police officers seeing the murderer in the act. Um, and when there's a need, like a baseline level of distrust and disrespect toward law enforcement officers, any run-in with the police is more dangerous for both sides. So. Police depend upon the trust and respect of their communities. And I actually, I mean, you know, I do believe that the vast majority of police officers are trying to do their jobs responsibly. But even if it's only a tiny proportion of officers who are involved, regularly involved in the most egregious misconduct, when those officers are excused on the basis of a lawless technicality, that reputational loss taints the entire profession. It erodes trust. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... And that's why, again, I mean, I've kind of used this phrase, the law enforcement lobby. I do not want to give the impression that law enforcement as a whole is all supportive of this doctrine. Mm. There are a lot of law enforcement groups, groups like the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, um, Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and even the major cities chiefs association, um, which at one point opposed any changes to qualified immunity, but in 2021 came out with a statement saying, you know, well, you know, we support reform. Um, it was written to sound very modest, but it actually kind of was like, let's get rid of the clearly established law mm. standard, which is which is, know, which is yeah. modern qualified immunity. So there are lots of law enforcement organizations that recognize that this doctrine is hurting them. Um, it's really just like the institutional, like police union type organizations that are, are resistant to it. Um, Interesting. So we always try to emphasize that because people are protective of law enforcement officers, yeah, understandably. Right. Um, and we want them to see that this doctrine is hurting them. Unfortunately, I think in the aftermath, especially of George Floyd's murder, there was so much 
pent up animosity and frustration, a lot of yeah. it very justified, but that came out as just anti-law enforcement. Yeah. And the and the issue of policing reform was wrapped up in sort of culture war narratives about yeah. how terrible and racist police officers were. We were also were. in the middle of a pandemic. We were in the middle of, I mean, it was a tough time. Yeah, so everyone you know, was, and, yeah. And, and I, I understand that frustration, but I think it was often presented in a way that was overstated, overgeneralized, and definitely counterproductive to yeah. the political go- goals that those activists had. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it was a real missed opportunity. Okay. Uh, before we talk about prescriptions, there's one other thing it just occurred to me that we need to touch on, which is that qualified immunity doesn't just protect police officers. That's right. Protects anybody acting under color of law, uh, in your words, um, the, the with the authority of the state, which applies to every public official, essentially. Yeah. So can you talk about the implications of something, obviously, that has we, it's gotten a lot of attention. We've talked uh, this entire time about the context of policing and policing reform. But what about every other government official out there from the Department of Justice to the FBI to a- anybody who works for the federal government is essentially immune from accountability for violating a private citizen's constitutional rights? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is not limited to law enforcement. I think that's kind of why it's come to national prominence, but it applies very broadly. Um, it, you know, there are tons of, for instance, it applies in the corrections context all the time. Ooh. There are some, I mean, we could spend hours talking about just horror stories of, you know, qualified immunity cases in prisons. prisons. Oh. Um, there are egregious violations that happen there um, that qualified immunity excuses. Um, it also applies in the education context. Um, there are a lot of times, you know, it say like the grade level or high school level, um, school officials can be responsible for uh, unlawful searches um, of students, um, and they can be excused for qualified immunity. Um, this comes up a lot in the higher education context with public university officials who are alleged to have violated students' First Amendment rights, generally like their free speech rights or their free exercise rights, um, which is an interesting area because this is a sort of civil rights case that's often reads a sort of more conservative friendly because this issue of like, you know, public schools, you know, th- you know, thwarting the the religious rights or, you know, free speech rights of conservative mm-hmm. students um, is is a very active concern. Um, and yet, and there are lots of Section 1983 cases brought against those kinds of officials where they are protected by qualified immunity. Wow. So yeah, it applies across the yeah. board. Now, it's a little bit complicated when you talk about federal officials okay. because, you know, again, Section 1983 only applies to state and local ah, officers. Okay. There is, as I mentioned earlier, there is no federal statute that lets you bring a claim against federal officers. Okay. The Supreme Court has created a cause of action um, that we generally call a Bivens action. Okay. Um, but in recent years, the Supreme Court has been narrowing the scope of Bivens a lot. And so it's extremely difficult to bring civil rights claims against any federal officers, not just because of qualified immunity, but just because of the scope of that cause of action to begin with. Wow. So we could kind of do a whole different episode on On the difficulty of saying, you know, in the immigration context or with FBI officials or DOJ officials, good luck to you. Right. Um, But that's honestly a problem that is even broader than qualified immunity. Okay. Um, although qualified immunity Good. does apply in the in those cases as well. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean the broader point that this is this is not just about law enforcement is well said. And I will say, you know, as much as I think a lot of um members of the law enforcement lobby make a lot of misrepresentations and bad faith arguments in defense of qualified immunity, the one pretty reasonable argument that they do often make is, look, if this is so bad, why are you just talking about taking it away from us? Huh. 
You know, yeah. you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, good point. Maybe and we it, should expand. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? Your terms are acceptable. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the civil rights groups that are interested in this all agree on that. I mean, yeah. I don't think that there's any major civil rights group that, that thinks the best policy is only to take this away from police. Yeah. I understand in the aftermath of, you know, George Floyd sure. and the aftermath of Tyree Nichols, why people are focused on it. And a polarized the, Congress means you got to start somewhere there was, where there's agreement. Yeah. Although in a way, I actually think the political dynamics here kind of cut both ways Okay. because doing this only as law enforcement, again, I think kind of reads as like picking on law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard various, you know, like Republican um, legislators in both Congress and, and, you know, at the state level say, well, hey, like, why are we only talking about police, you know, and why don't we, you know, apply this to teachers and, you know, t- you know, IRS, even though it doesn't technically you know, apply yeah. to them. But, um, and it's kind of like, yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. So let's do Great. do a broader across the board thing. Um, so in a way, I mean, maybe this is naive of me, but in the long term, I kind of hope that the better policy solution, which is just across the board elimination of QI, yeah. might actually be a, have a little bit more bipartisan appeal because it gets around this you're picking on law enforcement mm-hmm. angle, which is, you know, kind of reasonable. Would, if it, if if we got seriously close to touching this and and getting rid of it in some legislative way, which we're about to talk to talk talk about. Would you expect lobbies from lots of other public employee groups to get fired up? Like Absolutely. the teachers union, yeah, yeah. for example? Well, and that's actually, I mean, you know, again, I, I'm not an expert in sort of in politics here, but I think that that is part of what was driving some of the dynamics in the 2020 and 2021 mm. uh, congressional debates. Because, of course, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, eliminated qualified immunity only or would have eliminated qualified immunity only for law enforcement. And I, huh. and I, and, and you know, and to be fair, it was a policing reform sure. bill, but you know, principle, y- you better yeah. believe that there were a lot of like other public sector unions that were very influential on democratic leadership who d- would not Don't have wanted to see anyone us. else, yeah. you know, involved in that. Um, so again, I think it's, the politics are complicated and it is absolutely not as simple as like Democrats support QI reform, Republicans don't like there uh. are, there are cross currents going both ways. And you know, my naive hope is that perhaps is that there's a, a way to navigate those waters to actually make the best policy solution, the like bipartisan consensus solution. But I think we're still a ways away from that. It's usually more complicated than <laughs> it seems. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we do with all of this information. I think we've got a really rich backdrop here. Um, so I want to first talk about what your, in your view, what the best uh, route to ending qualified immunity might be, what that would look like. Um, and then I'd love to hear you characterize some of the other proposals that might be out there in the in the range of acceptable um, solutions that would achieve consensus. What are, What's on the menu? Right? Sure. So I think the, the first place to start is talk about like which institutions can address qualified immunity. Um, and because qualified immunity is purportedly an interpretation of a federal statute, um, you know, it's not a constitutional doctrine, so of course Congress can change it. Um, the Supreme Court could change it too. I mean, and that was when we started this campaign, our focus was on the Supreme Court because Justice Thomas had written separate concurrences saying, hey, like this doesn't look especially mm. correct. Maybe we should reconsider this. Um, the Supreme Court has decided not to reconsider qualified immunity. I think that that is frankly a dereliction of duty on their part. And I think this doctrine will go down as one of the most 
egregious and embarrassing mistakes in the history of the court alongside separate but equal. Have they rejected uh, good vehicles to decide this? Again and again and again. Interesting. Um, including several that were kind of coming to a head right around the time of George Floyd's oh, murder. Oh, wow. So they really don't want to touch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, in my view, that ship has sailed. And I think okay. that's tragic. But for the foreseeable future, I just don't think there's any hope of the Supreme Court fundamentally reconsidering the doctrine. Okay. Um, so that puts it in the hands of legislators. And um, at the federal level, of course, Congress could, you know, uh, in, in essence, amend Section 1983 to say this means what it says. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. That, we that, said what we said. <laughs> yeah. The qualified immunity is is not a defense. Um, this doesn't apply. And it's it's actually a very simple it's a very simple, straightforward solution. I mean, not politically simple, but right. mechanically, it's not complicated. Right. Um, and that, I think, is, in our view, is just the obvious starting point, is just eliminate this doctrine. Um, a lot of people kind of talk about, well, you so know— So that would need, be your preferred solution. It's very simple. It's elegant. politically complicated, but, yeah. but like, technically, it is very straightforward. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I think what I would—my um, ideal solution would be, you know, eliminate qualified immunity, clarify that, you know, if someone commits a violation— they're liable. They're liable. Yeah. Um, I think it would also be good to, uh, for Congress to, to create shared liability or more technically joint and several liability between um, public employees and their public employers. Mm. Um, because right now it is possible to sue municipalities. Like it is possible to sue police departments under Section 1983 under something called the Monell Doctrine. But that's incredibly difficult to do. Um, because you have to show that it was like a policy or practice of the department that caused the violation. It's not enough to just show your employee injured me in the course of their employment. And so you're also liable. Right. Um, so our ideal solution would be to for Congress to get rid of QI and, and then also basically uh, create shared liability between um, employers and their employees so that, you know, both entities have the right incentives to conform their conduct to constitutional limitations and also to guarantee a remedy um, to victims of misconduct. Yeah. Um, because, you know, even today, you know, the vast majority of police officers are, in, are fully indemnified by their employers anyway, um, whether or not they receive qualified immunity. Right. Um, I mean, very, very rarely do officers ever actually pay. And in part, you know... We should clarify what that means. Indemnification essentially means that the... Police that that the that the that the municipality is going to take the blame for whatever they're responsible. They're going for, to right? they're going to cover the financial judgment. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um. And and this actually sort of gets into an important and sort of new more nuanced policy disagreement, but even amongst um, proponents of QI reform, because some some people have suggested um, basically an employer only approach to liability. Basically, say like, look, let's just let's not let's not hold the individuals liable at all. Let's just say. The police department is always liable. Hmm. So anytime an officer, you know, causes a constitutional violation, the, you know, the police department pays, right? Okay. And I think that that sounds tempting mm -hmm. to a lot of people. It kind of sounds like, oh, you know, okay, well, it kind of sidesteps the controversy around officer liability and it guarantees financial compensation to victims. Um, but I think it's, it's kind of a trap solution that doesn't really get at the heart of the problem because civil rights laws have both deterrent and remedial components. And having, you know, public employers pay for all constitutional violations addresses part of the remedial component. Mm. But it doesn't really get at the deterrent component. It doesn't provide the individualized accountability right. that civil rights laws are meant to provide. And 
debatably, it could make the situation even worse, right? If you're basically telling, you know, individual officers or individual employees in any, you know, field, you are never going to be held personally liable. Right. It is only ever going to be your employer who's held liable. That, you know, even if victims are being compensated, the total number of constitutional violations might go up yeah. as opposed to down. Right. Um, so, you know, this is a, again, this is a dynamic question where it's not just about compensating victims in one-off circumstances. It's about providing the right incentives that over time, the number of constitutional violations decreases. Right. It's um, important to keep that in the in the focus. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve? To achieve here, we're trying to achieve the reduction in these violations occurring in the first place. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I think it also the other problem with an employer only approach is that it doesn't get it, it doesn't go to this restoring public trust in law enforcement, um, which is a huge yeah. problem right now yeah. for law enforcement as much as anyone else, as we were talking about earlier. And you know, imagine a system where you're basically telling people, well. You know, the officers who violate your constitutional rights will never have to pay a penny. But don't worry, you, the taxpayer, will be on the hook for all of their misconduct. <laughs> That's not a great recipe yeah. for restoring public trust in the police. Right. Um, and so, you know, the financial, like the practical financial reality is that employers are usually the ones with deep enough pockets to cover most of the judgments. Yeah. But there's a big difference between some skin in the game and no skin in the game. Yeah. And by creating that incentive structure, it does it you can the structure is there for really perverse incentives, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why our, you know, ideal approach is is shared liability. Yeah. And that kind of leaves to individual jurisdictions or states, you know, the question of how they want to apportion that liability. Mm -hmm. And it gives them flexibility to experiment with different solutions. Um, one solution that we think is really interesting is basically requiring police officers to carry individual insurance policies, hmm. um, sort of akin to how we have other professionals yeah. carry insurance policies. And of course, this could be funded by their employer. We're not talking about making police officers right. pay for this out of pocket. Right. But, you know, the money that, you know, departments otherwise already spend on indemnifying officers in these lawsuits could instead go toward funding insurance policies, which then provides much more individualized accountability. You could even structure it such that, you know, if you have you know, especially good record, um, you know, your premiums go down and you sort of get to right. pocket the difference, right? right? Whereas if you're, you know, routinely are accused, you know, of misconduct, your premiums go up. That's very and interesting. And eventually, you know, you simply be priced out of the market. Better incentives. And it's also, what I also like about that is it's kind of an end run around a lot of the bureaucratic red tape that makes it very difficult for mm -hmm. um, departments to discipline or remove the problem officers that they know are problems. But if they can't afford their premiums yeah. anymore, yeah. they can't be an officer. And, and that's that, what you want to happen right. in those situations. So, you know, I, I think it, I don't mean to say that that's like the one true solution. Sure. But I think it's an interesting idea. It's very interesting. And I, I mean, would love doctors, to see, doctors have medical malpractice insurance. Lawyers have malpractice insurance. This, right. this tracks. It makes sense. And, it, and so, yeah. So I think, you know, the, the right solution, at the federal level, it's just get rid of QI, shared liability. Mm -hmm. And then states and localities can experiment with the details based on their own local circumstances. Um, yeah. So it's it it's a federal solution in the sense of you're ensuring a, a remedy at the federal level, right. but it's a very federalism-friendly solution right. because you're letting every single jurisdiction in the country experiment with how to apportion liability. Yeah. Uh, does it have any chance? At <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> we should probably talk about how realistic any of this yeah. is now and, uh, and, and sort of 
what else might be on the table? Is there is there something that Democrats prefer over Republicans here, or is it really just um, nobody wants to touch the the thing that's going to bring the wrath of the yeah. unions? I mean, I think you know, I think realistically, yeah, it's. I would be very surprised if policing reform got through the Republican House right now. Yeah. Um, because of the optics, right? Because of the because optics. Of the yeah, optics. because of the optics. Not um, because of substantive disagreement. Right. Yeah. Um, there are, like, so in the 2021 cycle, um, uh, Senators Tim Scott, uh, who was, you know, you know, kind of leading the Republican negotiations over policing reform in the Senate, along with Lindsey Graham, who was very involved in this issue, were starting to... S- talk about this kind of employer liability only approach as something they were in principle open to. Mm. We never really saw a concrete proposal from them. So we don't know exactly what that would have meant, but they, they seem to be exploring that solution. And even in the last few weeks, Lindsey Graham uh, on Twitter has talked about, you know, I don't want to have officers liable, but maybe we should make departments liable. Um, so, you know, I, I think right now, at least Republicans tend to be favoring more the employer liability only approach, whereas Democrats seem to are, are more focused on individual, individual liability. liability. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, my hope at the federal level is that we get sort of more open discussion about this issue. I'm, I'm hopeful that like the temperature is a little bit lower now than it was in the immediate <laughs> aftermath of George Floyd. Um, and so maybe that there's a little bit less heat that makes it impossible to have rational discussions yeah. here. But what I'm more optimistic for is uh, more reform at the state level. Okay. Um, which a few a, a few jurisdictions um, have already passed state level qualified immunity reform. You mentioned Colorado. Yeah, Colorado, New Mexico, and um, even New York City um, mm. passed city level reform. And you know, to kind of take it take a step back, just to clarify, um, qualified immunity is a federal doctrine that right. applies to a federal statute, and a state, of course, cannot change federal right. law. So sometimes the, these state level reforms are described as a state getting rid of qualified immunity. What's more, what they're actually doing is that they are creating a state-level civil rights law that is kind of an analog to the federal Section 1983 and saying, okay, if your rights are violated, you can bring a cause of action in state court Mm -hmm. for damages, and then just clarifying that qualified immunity will not be a defense to that action. Ah, okay. So they're not changing how qualified immunity would work in federal courts in their state, but they're creating an alternative remedy in state courts. Okay. Um, and so that's exactly what Colorado did. Um, they Their reform was specific to police officers. Um, New Mexico did that. They did that across the board for all public officials. Um, and then New York City um, also passed that reform specifically for police officers. Theirs was a little bit narrower. It only really covered Fourth Amendment violations, not other kinds of violations. But still, all were very clear that qualified immunity would not apply. Okay. Um, so I what I what I hope is that we see more states – taking this issue up again, more momentum there. And then hey, we, laboratories of democracy, exactly. what do you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what that hopefully continues to provide is more evidence against the, you know, apocalyptic predictions of opponents of QI reform. You know, even now, I mean, people will often say, you know, kind of excitedly, you get rid of qualified immunity, you won't have police officers. You know, it's like, <laughs> last time I checked, there are still police officers in Colorado. Yeah. Um, there are still police officers in New York City. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think the more evidence we get there, the the harder it will be to make those arguments against um, national level reform. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is kind of this weird reversal where, you know, Section 1983 was originally passed to guarantee a federal remedy against recalcitrant states who were refusing to protect the constitutional rights yeah. of their citizens. And the Supreme Court came along and unilaterally <laughs> undermined this federal remedy. And now, you know, states are 
kind of trying to pick up the pick up the slack, which is great. But I think even the most ardent libertarian federalist, which yeah. I am, yeah. thinks you know maybe like after national defense, <laughs> like the most important thing the federal government can do is protect the constitutional rights of all yeah. of its citizens. Yeah. So you know, I would love to see more state reform in the meantime, but this isn't something. That Cong I mean, Congress did not leave this issue to the states. Congress passed a federal civil rights law, and they need to take back their prerogative to say, we meant what we said. Yeah. Okay. Um, where would you point people to if they want to get involved in this issue in some way? Is there some place that activism actually will help move the needle in this, uh, in this debate? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not frankly, an expert on you sure. know, political activism. So I don't want yeah. to sort of hold myself out as an expert here. I think that um, we're going to see more action on this at the state and local level. Okay. And so I think that this is something that people should, um, you know, communicate with with their lawmakers, um, you know, at the level where that's, there's a little bit more responsiveness yeah. to those concerns. City level, state level. Yeah. I, I think what, but also what may be equally as important is changing the broader narrative around this issue. Because I think so long as, you know, QI reform is coded as a anti-law enforcement right. thing, and that it's it's wrapped up with, you know, narratives about defund the police and whatever, it's it's never going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what I would encourage, you know, people who maybe are, you know, sort of more like conservative or, you know, law enforcement friendly sort of leaning is to really think critically about the way that this is hurting this profession that they feel a lot of protectiveness toward yeah. and sort of talk with their friends about it in those terms. And for people who maybe sort of have a more progressive bent and, you know, more skeptical of law enforcement to, to recognize the, you know, the way in which some kinds of activism can be counterproductive mm. toward political goals and that some kinds of framings of the issue can make it harder to make progress. Um, this is, yeah, I'm sure that everyone feels this way about their pet issues, but like this yeah. really is something that I think is genuinely ought not to be a partisan issue, that yeah. there really is consensus in the policy space. And if that can translate into consensus in how we talk about this culturally, yeah. that I think is going to be what makes progress possible. Um, and so that kind of like broader cultural narrative, you know, and, you know, on social media and other, and otherwise is, I think, at least as important as the way that people communicate with their, with actual policymakers. This makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Maybe Jay, do, maybe yeah. do some podcasts about it. Maybe do some podcasts yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh, or send around a podcast episode <laughs> from your favorite podcast for other people to listen to. That would be, uh, that would be useful. Okay. Um, before I let you go, uh, where should everybody find you on the internet? If you do, you, do you talk about this? Do you want to be followed? Are you yeah, on Twitter absolutely. anymore? No, I, am on, I, I am on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Um, it's just at, uh, J A Y underscore Schweikert, mm -hmm. um, S C H W E I K E R T. Okay. And then if you go to, um, cato.org slash qualified immunity, you'll get access to a lot of our, uh, writing on the subject. Wonderful. Jay, thanks for taking the time today. This is very helpful. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>